With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo. With me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy uh, second to last or last podcast before the Syracuse preview week. Yeah, get uh, get yourselves prepped because it's going to be likely an hour and twenty of talking every aspect of Syracuse from most of the players on the roster. We'll probably take some unexpected twists and turns. Who knows where else? I uh, I'm excited. It's also uh, the the clearest sign yet that uh, that the season is almost upon us. Yes. Um, hopefully, and hopefully it'll publish and you can hear this this week and we won't have to like figure something stupid out. Last week worked. So I, I, I'm going to have faith. Last week did work. Um, so moving on and moving up, I guess. Agreed. Um, we're going to get into our Atlantic division San Syracuse preview, uh, for the second half of this week's episode, but in the first half. Uh, going to talk just a, bit, a little bit about you know some of the things happening with Syracuse, some of the things we've been doing on the site, uh, just have some more spirited conversations about those items. Uh, first and foremost, a uh, little bit of a foray into our second favorite topic on the show, beer, and uh, how ACC football programs rank with regard to what's available locally. Um, as always, one fan base is pissed off. Uh, last year it was BC, the year before it was Georgia Tech. This year, it is Virginia. Uh, Virginia is the most annoyed with me of all the fan bases. Um, I rank them ninth out of 14. Dan, I don't... I mean, yes, I haven't been to Charlottesville. But no, I don't necessarily think that, given who's listed in front of them, that there's really much of a leg to stand on. Yeah, I mean, it's that. And also, like, this is a pretty good conference in terms of... Especially when you expanded the... The uh, like strictness, of, or, or I guess lessen the strictness of the locations. Like there are a lot of really good beer areas in the conference. So like being ninth is not like like Syracuse is really really good beer, and finishing tenth is like not that big a deal because like the top, I'd say like the top twelve all have really really good scenes uh, based compared to like probably a lot of the other um, most of the SEC for sure. Yeah, I mean, the SEC, I feel like there are a couple, like, notable places here and there, and, like, obviously Pac-12, you have all the California spots, and, like, they're, but uh, Big Ten, you know, Midwest has some decent stuff, but the ECC, like, really covers a lot of ground. Um, so, no no real, like, I don't know, I wouldn't get too upset about being anywhere on this list, to be honest. No, absolutely not. And, like, to me, I think there was a clear, like, top seven or eight, and then, and then there was everybody else. I mean, I've definitely seen more complaints... All time, I've seen more complaints about 
about non-Syracuse placements than I've ever seen about, about Syracuse's ranking on a list. Um, well, this particular list, which I've been doing for three or four years. Very puzzling. Uh, number one change this year because of the, uh, the changing criteria that you mentioned. Uh, the new number one is BC. Uh, I gave them, unlike previous years, the entire Boston area. Um, not just the Chestnut Hill Newton area that they were limited to beforehand. Uh, so that gave them access to Trillium, Lamplighter, uh, Night Shift, numerous other breweries. You could go far past the top three that I, uh, you know, listed there. Um, NC State was two, Georgia Tech three, uh, Duke was four, and rounding out the top five was Louisville, uh, largely on the strength of Against the Grain as the, uh, top brewery for them. And I'd say one of the best breweries in the conference, um, Dan, how, I mean, j- just kind of sampling the list here, uh, do, do you feel like there's one city in particular that, that you really want to get more familiar with in, in terms of their uh, local beer scene? North Carolina, it's not a blind spot for me. I've had a lot of stuff from North Carolina overall. Uh, not UNC specifically, but like, um, and actually I'd say more of the the, uh, the, tr- the um, Triangle area because I've been to Winston-Salem a bunch, so I know Foothills really well. I know a couple of the other breweries there really well, and they were the number one before we expanded the search here. But I'd definitely like to, to know more, like, get more stuff from, like, the Raleigh area, uh, because almost everything I've had from, from North Carolina overall is, is very good. I know Asheville isn't represented here, but um, obviously they're one of the more noteworthy, like, small cities in terms of beer production in the country. So overall, like, outside of, the, outside of like, the Charlotte and uh, Greensboro, Winston-Salem, like, trio of spots... Um, I'd definitely like to, uh, to try more stuff from like Eastern North Carolina. Fair. Uh, I know you mentioned Asheville, um, one of, uh, a, a friend of the show and friend of the blog, uh, Woody Whitehurst, one of the only sufferable, um, Clemson fans on the internet, um, was trying to claim, uh, <laughs> Asheville area for Clemson. Uh, that, he, that's a little bro. I know he was, it was more of a joke. <laughs> of course he, uh, he started, he started with Asheville and then started grabbing at Athens uh, Brevard, numerous other places. I kind of laughed it off. Uh, Lauren Brownlow got into a, a spirited debate with him. Yeah, I think I think I think state boundaries are something to respect here. Yes, even if Clemson is pretty close to like both parts of both those states. Yeah, and, and that's totally fine. I think in general, like South Carolina, to be honest, has come a long way in, in recent years. I think that they'll continue to progress. Virginia Tech, on the other hand, and uh, our, our friend Beer Control. Uh, definitely takes this all in stride, uh, but Virginia Tech once again last in this list. Um, I don't necessarily see how they get out of that unless Blacksburg suddenly becomes a hub for uh, for quality craft beer. And I mean, it's happened before in some cases. Like I remember when I first started doing things like this, and, and Tallahassee really didn't have much option to choose from, and now you know Tallahassee actually finished you know just below us, and they're. They're seemingly getting better by the day, but you know places like Virginia Tech, um, the area around Notre Dame, uh, plenty of places in, in the Big Twelve and, and the SEC, which have more stringent alcohol laws. Uh, yeah, th- those spots just seem to not necessarily progress at the same rate. So I, I I do like to see kind of differences year to year. That's in part why I, I changed the criteria too, because it, it it makes it a little bit more fun to make these lists. Uh, look slightly different and give people different things to be happy about, different things to complain about. I, I know last year, uh, number one was actually Wake Forest, um, just on the strength of Foothills. Um, the year previous, when we just did individual beers, um, Louisville was number one, 
for uh, for Against the Grains, Bo and Luke, which is uh, among my favorite beers. Yeah, I'm like the Tallahassee and Blastbird. Like, I think there's always a shot because it's a co- they're college towns, so like stuff pops up around them because of that. So there isn't like it's not inconceivable that some like really awesome microbrewery pops up in Blacksburg in the next couple of years and makes some like really cool stuff. It just might take a while for the word to get out to like where we're hearing about it or where we obviously have a chance to try it. Um, so yeah, it's not like out of the realm. It's just like, it's, it's, uh, you know, they're both works in progress and Clemson too. I mean, it's just a small college town. So like it could happen, but they don't get the, the chance to like claim like something that's, you know, in a larger town that also happens to be where colleges, even something like Winston-Salem where like, Wake Forest is obviously a major part of that town, but it's still like a pretty big town outside of Wake Forest being there, so there's just more going on. Clemson doesn't really have that. Vatek doesn't really have that. Tallahassee obviously is a bigger town, but uh, which is probably the most surprising one in terms of like there not being this like really solid beer scene. Uh, but it's also Florida State, and I imagine they drink a lot of macro brews. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think in general, Florida just seems like they were pretty behind. I mean, other than Cigar City... Um, and then more recently, like Funky Buddha, you weren't necessarily talking about breweries in Florida getting any sort of real national hype or national press. Um, that's changed of late um, with you know places like Jay Wakefield uh, that I mentioned, uh, Wynwood and others. Like I, I think Florida is a little bit behind, but I don't think they're as far behind as, as much of the like you know true South that they uh, that they share that part of the country with. So. I, I do think that they'll they'll keep progressing, to be honest. And I think, like, you know, it really just, you were saying, like, these places pop up pretty quickly. It, it honestly just takes one beer enthusiast graduate decide to put their talents to work and, and open up a local spot and start making great beers. And, like, that's how that's how scenes grow. And in and, and one spot turns into two, two turns into four, and suddenly you have a, a pretty, you know, bustling beer scene. I mean, the whole Research Triangle area wasn't always... Um, you know, one of the darlings and kind of like smaller market gems of, of the of the beer scene in America, and in the last you know five to seven years, um, it's it's really been able to develop quite well. Yeah, for sure. And hopefully we, we see uh, hopefully we see more stuff pop up at a lot of these places that we can then go visit. I would agree. Um, moving on from beer until we swing back around to it for halftime, uh, I want to chat a couple other things going on right now. Uh, in particular. Numbers that show that, yeah, maybe Eric Dungy should run a little bit less. I know this is kind of a running joke for Syracuse fans at this point, uh, that he will run less. Uh, we've said it every single year, and every single year it doesn't happen. He actually runs more. But if you look at uh, Bill C's numbers over at Football Study Hall last week, uh, they did look at running backs and uh, running quarterbacks who are both efficient and explosive. Um, Eric Dungy was not among the top 20 or so in terms of balanced players like that. And... It's not to say that like that replaces an eye test, and I think, but I, at the same time, I think an eye test does tell you that, you know, for for every big home run that that Dungy gets, he, he's getting hit for one and two yard gains um, just as frequently. So I, I personally think the offensive line uh, improvements and something we'll talk about next week. I think those improvements are going to help him here, but it, it does really boil down to is he looking to pass first or run first and. If there's quality blocking, hopefully he he moves his his quick reads, which this uh, this offense kind of calls for, you know, transitions those 
to be to be pass first and, and, and quick throws um, near the line of scrimmage versus you know taking off and, and kind of biding his time in the backfield as he has in, in, in the last couple seasons. Yeah, I think you hit, you hit the nail on the head there. It's it's just as much about the surrounding cast, uh, specifically the offensive line and the receivers and their ability to get open, as it is uh, for Dungy. Obviously, I think he was a little bit quick. Uh, I wouldn't say quick trigger, quick to, to tuck it as when he started to feel some pressure. I'm sure there were definitely spots if he went back and looked where he could have stood in the pocket, stepped up, and made another read. Um, and instead he like runs and scrambles out and takes a hit and probably only gets a couple yards. Um, I don't have a problem when he leaks out if there's really good coverage and he leaks out and is able to make something happen and pick up a first down or pick up eight yards or something like that. But hopefully we get to a point with the surrounding cast where he can afford to make make the extra read, take a, an extra step up in the pocket, uh, identify um, some other things in the field that he didn't have time to do the year before, and that only really takes like an extra you know half second of time. And hopefully with the offensive line uh, improvements or, or what we hope are improvements that'll be uh, you know he'll be able to do that and, and still keep the the danger that that comes from his running ability which you know is a is a factor for the defense to consider so we don't want to like completely strip him off his game uh, or completely strip him of what makes him a unique uh, quarterback in this league but you don't want him taking off and taking unnecessary hits and um, even just like those one or two yard gains where, you know, I'd rather see him just throw the ball away unless it's third down. And, or even if it's just like a hopeless situation, just, you know, throw it away and, and live to, to see another down versus, you know, taking what could be what, you know, might not even look like a big hit, but we know those things add up, especially for someone who uh, has a history of concussions. So we'll see. Um, hopefully, you know, all these things allow him to be more effective in that regard. Yeah, completely. And like, that's not to say that he doesn't throw well on the run. He actually did last year. Um, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but while it was tracking plays, it was something that I was uh, paying some mind to is that, you know, when he was rolling out of the pocket, he actually was completing throws well. And it's because he was sucking in defenses to try to prevent him from taking off. So like, like you said, you don't want to stop him from doing that. But Bill C's numbers removed sacks from the equation, and he still had well over 100 carries last year. And that's in nine games. To me, that, that does seem kind of problematic, um, e- even with the increased size. I know he's like 6'4", 226 right now. Um, he's going to lose a little bit of that weight throughout the season. I, I just think, you know, you, you saw the accuracy go down as the year wore on. You saw him feel the hits, um, not just in his legs, but in his arms. I think his, in, in general, you know, taking too long to make those reads, um, whether it was running or passing, did start to harm him accuracy-wise. So I hope that we start having those quick reads because, and again, something we'll talk about next week, but when you have, you know, speedy options near the line of scrimmage, um, like Sean Riley, uh, Nakeem Johnson, when you have somebody like Ravian Pierce, who is a guy who can create mismatches, but that there's a limited window for that um, before, you know, bigger players start coming toward him um, if he slips in behind the line, like, I, I, I do think that, that we see a, a resurgence in accuracy from Dungy, more resembling like the 64, 65% he had in 2016 versus the 59.7% we saw last year. Yeah, you, you don't want to have him play in a way that he's not comfortable doing, and you don't want to try to turn him into something uh, he's not. So I, I think it just has to come from both sides. Like You have to put him in a position where he can hang in the pocket more, and, and that's not going to be an issue, and he's not going to take sacks that way, but also just, just cut down on the on the the needless uh, examples of him uh, storting out of the pocket. So hopefully these are both things that are coming. Um, I think we're both pretty optimistic about the offensive line, although it's tough to know until we finally see them. 
But uh, on paper, it seems like something that should be reasonable to expect. Um, a lot of it also comes down to the receiving core and getting having guys that can get open even more than just like the one or two guys we've had the last couple of years. Oh, yeah. And, and, and we've talked about that, too, quite a bit, that this might be a more well-rounded group and having more options that you trust or maybe more options you have the same amount of trust for um, could help that long term. Um, for some reason, while you were talking there, I also just had a flashback to that nonsensical it was like diving front flip that he did in game one last year um, that was great yeah that was that that was one of the more horrifying things i've seen from him um and that was in a in a, in a completely meaningless game against central connecticut so i uh i, I very much hope that we, we don't see more of that this year at all yeah especially in a game like that hopefully we are well into devito time before dungy decides to start like doing you know acrobatics for no reason when we're up <laughs> multiple touchdowns very much agree. Um, another side note from uh, the last you know few days or week of uh, of coverage over on the blog, um, Coog Center, the uh, SB Nation's uh, Washington State blog, has been doing their uh, their annual never kick uh, graphic kind of tracking how much teams go for it on fourth down, um, how much they avoid punting, how much they avoid kicking. You see a very entertaining graph for Syracuse, you know, from the the height of the Schaefer era really just punting all the time um, and then swinging all the way up to now where we're one of the top 10 teams in the country in terms of going for it. I, I mentioned in the comments, uh, and you might remember from last year where I was kind of tracking like just how often, like, like what was like the plus minus kind of of that conversation. So looking at a drive and seeing the, if you went for it, seeing what happened for you, the team, but then also seeing what happened on the next drive, whether you made or missed or, and especially if you missed, because then, like, did that turnover on downs actually result in the other team putting up points? And I feel like, if I recall correctly, like, SU was something like plus 59 points or something like that. Um, they really only had, I think, one game where going for it actually resulted in points for the other team. Uh, which, to me, I mean, not having anybody else's numbers in front of me and not having the exact figures for SU um, clouds that, you know, conclusion a little bit. But um, I, I feel like... I feel like for, if you run our tempo, and, and maybe this is the case for everybody else too, like seeing, seeing that sort of swing in points um, gives you every reason that as long as you're probably within you know, your own 45, um, it, it's worth at least giving it a shot as long as you have some reasonable yards to go. Yeah, I think Dino's done a really nice job of it, and it's, it's very jarring to look at the numbers compared to the Schaefer years especially. But I appreciate it, um, and it's also helped that the fact that we have a very good punter. So it's not like he has to avoid, like he has to worry about um, a punt going wrong because you know ninety-five percent of the time the punt will be fine. So he really has like a, a very good base from which to make that decision, and I think he's done you know a really good job with it so far. Yeah, and I mean, you and I were saying this during the, the Schaefer era too. Like, I, I'd rather I'd rather you went for it on fourth seven times and only converted two of them than punted things away in, in third and in fourth and short situations as often as we did there um, just kind of give up on drives especially when points are at a premium like for Babers theoretically points shouldn't really be at a premium they are in some cases um, if only because of the quality of the defenses in the ACC the fact that we haven't been overly efficient but at the same time yeah like I, I'd, I'd much rather maximize our opportunities and and try to do everything we can to get points and and you know, if the defense is holding up as it was for much of last year, um, save the last like three or four games, like I'm fine putting putting it on the defense to make a stop in in spurts and and not pulling you know what happened during the Schaefer era, which was 
always put it on the defense to make a stop and never trust your offense to, to put points on the board, which is the only way you're going to win games. Yeah, no, I agree. I think the most important thing is just that to, to do it within the flow of the game. You know how your offense is playing. You know how the matchups are. You know how your defense is playing. So, like, it's easier just to say, you know, plug in the New York Times fourth down bot and say, like, every single time it says to go for it, you should go for it. I tend to be more inclined with, you know, a lot of those decisions. But overall, like, you you have to have a feel for how things are going and, and just, like, make those decisions based on, on what you like on the field versus just, like, being crazy about it or not going for it, but it, it felt like so often, you know, Schaefer just did just didn't feel like, like I mean, he, he says it was confidence in the defense, but so often it was just so little confidence in the offense, even in situations in which they had the major advantage in terms of down and distance or personnel or even just like a drive had gone pretty well. General momentum. <laughs> yeah, just like, and I know there's like debates over whether momentum exists or whatnot, but like, I feel like you just have to know sometimes, like, what – it is very field-based. And, and we know that's a big part of how Babers coaches. He doesn't, you know, look at his playbook during games. And he just kind of, you know, rolls out there with, with you know, and, and has a, a decent, like, idea of what he wants to see on a play-to-play basis. I do wonder if that number is going to flatten out a bit this year, if the defense improves, as we hope. I think a lot of it was he was playing to the strengths of the team, which last year was definitively the offense, especially late in the year, even when things started to uh, – you know, the team started to get banged up, and the, but the defense, you know, really struggled down the stretch. So I hopefully um, – I don't know if I hope that the number goes down, but I do wonder, you know, what the, the what Babers' numbers look like, look like uh, with a better defense. Um, looking at Bowling Green, he was at uh, – he went for it on fourth end 17.16% of the time. His first year in 2014, which was number 75 in the country, they really went – had fourth downs. Uh, they, they had 134, which ranked really low. Um, they get field goals a lot, so I think a lot of drives stalled out in, in you know relatively decent field position. And then all in 2015, his last year there, they jumped all the way up to 30.3%, uh, which they uh, was ranked pretty close to the top of the country. Um, what were we? What were we in uh, last year? We were last year. We were very high. We were top eight, I think. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think this year he was. It's like 11. So, yeah, it seems like it seemed, you know, kind of similar to what we've seen the two years. Obviously, Bowling Green was lower his first year there. They were also, you know, they were a better team that year than Syracuse was, at least relative to the, to the competition. But a similar jump from year to year. So I, it could also be like, uh, you know, him getting comfortable with his roster type deal. Um, so maybe maybe we'll see, actually see him. I don't know how much higher we're going to get than what we did last year based on, like, you know, being ranked that high in the country. But... Maybe that that could be just more normal than what uh, than what we've seen previously. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like remember too, like this is without a real short yardage option as well. Um, so I'll I'll definitely take it, and, and again, I hope it doesn't prove because um, I, I think that this team this team staying that aggressive is is can only be seen as a good thing. Um, and, and, and the more points that we put on the board, no matter how much this defense might, manages to improve this year, um, again, can, can only be a, a positive for us because I think we really need to get toward, you know, that closer to that 30 points, 30, I mean, I'd say 30 points per game is a, is a reasonable bar this year um, just because we've kind of fallen short of that, especially late in seasons uh, these past couple of years. So. Open for more points, and, and, and more points means likely uh, more fourth down conversions, too. That'd be nice. All right. I know it's a little early, but why don't we uh, move on to some halftime, and then we can jump into the Atlantic. Let's do it. Um, 
congrats to put my on tap on the right page. But I had a pretty good weekend. I was I spent uh, some of it upstate. I spent some of it in Vermont. So both obviously pretty good places for beer. So at first I was up in the Albany area. Um, I visited my friend at Wolf Hollow where I bring up their beer a lot. They had a, a cast. Um, they conditioned their amber with uh, some tiramisu flavor. Um, Interesting. Made for made for a really delicious, uh, a really delicious you know taste. Um, pretty interesting because it was you know it definitely still drank like their amber uh which is nice and crisp and like pretty balanced uh the tiramisu wasn't like crazy overpowering um definitely had some coffee notes but not like super dark like a lot of coffee beers uh it was also colder sort of colder than your normal cast uh, which i appreciated i don't always love uh how cast beer drinks i don't order it as much because of that uh that's a very american thing of me um (laughs) I'm sure I would get raked over coals in England for that. Probably. Um, so that was delicious. I also had their night lager, which was very good. Uh, and then up in uh, Burlington, or in, outside Burlington, um, I had a rarefied air from Fiddlehead Brewing, which was delicious. Um, I had a tribute from 14th Star. Uh, a couple different things from 14th Star. Also their Valor Ale. They, they're, I think they're run by a number of veterans, so their, their beers are all uh, named for, you know, various veteran specific words and phrases um and i think they donate to various funds um but their beers were all very good uh the valor i think was probably my favorite that was their uh their red ale um what else did i have up there uh i had a you can't get there from here uh the black raspberry and currants uh edition by burlington beer company uh which was delicious that was a, a sour uh but they do a lot of different flavors of that um so that was really good. Uh, I had an uh, Athenaeum uh, from Hermit Thrush, uh, which was, I think, brewed for their, the bar up there, the Archives, which is similar to, like, a Barcade, um, which, for some reason, all of those, like, seem to get their own uh, local beers. Um, so that was really good. I had a Susan from Hill Farmstead. Always, everything from Hill Farmstead, always great. Um, I went to Foam Brewers for a bit. Uh, I only wanted to beer there. We were just stopping in. I know that's supposed to be, like, the the new trendy spot in Burlington. I had their Distro Lemonade, which was really interesting. Uh, it is a, uh, it's listed as a sour, but there's also a lot of like, has a lot of different uh, like wheat notes. So it kind of drinks like, um, like a really lemony uh, Belgian, um, hmm. but a little drier. Uh, that was really good. Uh, I had a Jaguar Shark from Zero Gravity, which was delicious. I had a Wilson's Clover from Zero Gravity, which was delicious. So a lot of really good stuff. Uh, Burlington's an awesome beer town. So, yeah, that was a really good, solid weekend for me. Nice. Busy weekend for you. Um, on my end, nothing like crazy. Uh, was down at Ballast Point again in Long Beach. My parents were in town, so I went to take them over there. Had a Grunion Pale Ale and also had a Spruce Tip IPA that uh, was only on draft there. Uh, grabbed a four-pack of Beachwood Amalgamator, uh, one of my favorite IPAs that I talk about on here a lot. Um, was down in Orange County for a bit and had from a Rip Brewing Company, uh, beer company down in um, San Diego, the uh, Tragically Rip. It's a uh, pale ale from them. Also had a Smog City Coffee Porter and opened up a bottle of uh, Celador Ales uh, Entropic. It's a wild ale with uh, passion fruit, guava, uh, and tangerines primarily. Uh, so really good beer there. In general, I said... Had a good amount of beers, but but kept it kind of moderately interesting. Not as uh, not as extravagant as your weekend, Dan. I regret nothing. Um, 
I was also in a new city, so I, I you know, had to explore the local scene, especially one like Burlington, which has a million breweries. Of course. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if we'll get this up in time, but I uh, should mention it just in case we do. Um, tomorrow, uh, Thursday the 16th, brought it up a couple times, I will be at Broken Bow Brewing in Takahoe, New York, uh, talking Syracuse football and drinking beers and talking beers, uh, probably not drinking Syracuse football. Um as part of the uh, Westchester and Fairfield County Alumni Association. Uh, they have an event there every year. So uh, hopefully we get a decent turnout, um, get a chance to, to hang out for a couple hours. Uh, I am looking forward to trying their beers. Um, I know they're very local, so that's always a treat. Um, and if you're in the city or just north of the city, shouldn't be too hard to get there. It's right off the Crestwood stop on the Harlem line from Metro North. So... Hope to see some of you guys there, and uh, again, not sure if we'll get this episode up in time, but if it we're a little late, then hopefully uh, I saw some of you there, and we had a good time. Ask Tulane questions. Yes, for me, uh, as I was reminded, I said I would I would buy beers for anyone who brought Tulane merch, so I, I assume I'll, everyone's going to be putting me out of, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I won't, have to, I won't be able to pay rent this month because <laughs> of all the Tulane hats that I get. We can only hope. Um, all right, so the Atlantic Division. Now, we're still not happy we're in this division, if only because it's difficult, but whatever. Still interesting. The teams bore us at this point because we have to play them so often. Um, but let's just start at the top in terms of alphabetical order. Um, Boston College. Um, this podcast is probably going to have a lot more shade than, uh, than the previous one. Um, we had a couple teams that we were kind of aiming at that time here. I feel like there's a lot of things to say about the teams that everyone's deemed darlings at this point. Uh, and that starts with BC, who a lot of notable media members are kind of ranking in their top 25. Phil Steele had them among his top 25 teams. Um, so Brett McMurphy submitted his ballot, and his had BC, I think, at 21 or 22. Um, so this is potentially looking like a top 25 Eagles team. Um, Dan... A, do you believe it? And if you don't, give me your reasons why you don't. I don't believe it. Um, I can see where they do become a top 25 team. Um, they need a lot to go right for them. Uh, A.J. Dillon's being crowned as, like, the Nets' really prolific Boston College running back, and he very well maybe. But it's going to be very difficult if they don't have uh, a passing attack to keep defenses honest. And last year, uh, Anthony Brown was had, had some moments, um, including some moments in some pretty good teams. He was also dreadful in some games against some pretty bad teams. Louisville was one of them. Louisville had the worst defense in the ACC, including us, and he just could not figure them out. Uh, yet, you know, he played well against some other teams. So if he comes along and takes a big uh, sophomore year step forward, then they can be pretty dangerous. Uh, they do have to replace a bunch, uh, especially on defense, from a pretty good team last year. So I, I can see it. If, if, if Brown comes along and they have a, a legitimate – uh, multifaceted offense, and it's not just Dylan running into the line for you know four yards a carry. Then yeah, they could be pretty good. But even those like pretty good Boston College teams of recent vintage are like top out of like seven, you know eight wins. So it's not like a huge. I don't. I just don't think the ceiling's super high. So you know maybe that's good enough to sneak into the back end of the top twenty-five. But I, I you know I think that's probably like best case scenario. Yeah, I mean, BC under Adazio, for the last five years, they've won no more than seven games. They've won 7-7-3, seven, 7-7. Seven, seven, and seven. So, yeah, they've had talent at the NFL level, and yeah, they pulled off some nice upsets, but they haven't necessarily seen the payoff with, with the you know NFL-caliber talent they've been able to churn out. You know, they pretty much bring back everybody on offense, save wide receivers, but I don't really think that matters. 
Um, I think that the, the leading receiver is probably going to be tight end Tommy Sweeney, um, who's a all-conference contender and potentially more. Um, they do replace a hell of a lot on defense, and I think that's something everyone keeps just writing off. Like, Zach Allen's back, Lucas Dennis is back, um, and those are two guys who are definitely going to get a ton of hype um, in conference and elsewhere. But, like, you don't just replace guys like Harold Landry um, and Ty Schwab. It's not like BC's recruiting at a top 30 level um, and can just reload there. I think that there is going to be a little bit of a step back um, on the defensive side of the ball, um, if only because they have to replace those bodies. And, like, you know, Dylan was really a workhorse at the end of last year, and I, I think that's being completely discounted for some reason. Like, we've seen this before uh, with BC running backs. I think he had, like, well over 200 carries, and he really only started, you know, being their primary back and a guy who was carrying 20, 25 times a game, like, over the last eight games of the season. So, like, his numbers are impressive, and, and it, I'm not taking that away from him at all, but I do wonder what durability looks like for, for any back, not just him. Um, if you're put through the ringer like that, e- even behind what might be the, the ACC's top offensive line. Yeah, Dylan, he was getting a pretty good workload. I mean, he only ran five times in the season opening when in Northern Illinois. Um, he ran it, you know, in the teens the next three games. Um, Vatek, he was held to 10 carries, and then from there he carried 39, 24, 33, 36, 24, 23, 32. So it picked up in Central Michigan and then really picked up after the, the – uh, the Vatek game, and that's where they started winning games. Really, they they were five and two uh, in that stretch from at Louisville on. Uh, the only loss was coming to NC State, where he ran for 196 yards, and Iowa in the bowl game where he ran for 157. His lowest output that stretch was 89 in his Virginia, which weirdly was the team to really bottle him up. Vatek smacked them last year, in, or Virginia smacked them last year in a pretty bizarre 41-10 game, given the fact that I think Virginia was already. Definitely on their downswing, right? Uh, by that point last season? I believe so, yeah. It was uh, October 21st. Let me find their schedule from last year. Um, that one, Virginia won. Yeah, that's what I said. Oh, yeah. Or that's what oh, I no, sorry, not Virginia won. BC won. Yeah, BC won despite the fact oh, that... I'm a, yes, I'm an idiot. <laughs> All good. Um, yes, you should probably just cut that. Uh, BC won despite <laughs> the Virginia... Virginia um, <laughs> oh, all right. Boston College won, despite the fact that Virginia bottled up Andre, uh, A.J. Dillon uh, for only 89 yards on 24 carries, no touchdowns, a week after he scored four times in Louisville. Yeah, it, uh, I was just looking at W's and L's backwards for That's a second right. there. Not great. Um, yeah, so, of all, you know, of all teams, you wouldn't expect Virginia to be the one to, to do that, but obviously it didn't really matter based on the score. Yeah, so if he gets those sanitary numbers, um, obviously Andre Williams is the guy that everyone's thinking of. Uh, we saw Andre Williams go down in our game against him um, in 2014, uh, or 2013, rather. Uh, Stock Shaver's first year as head coach, and we went, you know, had to win that game to go to the Texas Bowl. Andre Williams went down pretty early in the game, I believe. And not that that, you know, meant that Syracuse was going to, you know, lose. They were actually, they were handling him really well that, that game. But... It's like the right, the risky run when you're going to have your running back carry like the ball 30 times on average. He's getting hit a lot, and you know it just takes one to knock him out for a game or knock him out for weeks at a time. So he's really, really good. Uh, it's actually amazing. He did not catch one pass last year. That is weird. Also not weird because it's BC, and no matter who is a quarterback, I mean, Brown had a couple of good games, but uh, by and large, like there's not really anyone to throw to besides Sweeney, and any backup is not really going to be able to do much. So... 
Uh, it's just interesting they can't like there wasn't like one situation in which he was like a, a you know uh, uh, an outlet that Brown could dump off to. Right. Um, he was. <laughs> I, I have to. I haven't seen how their passing game was uh, developed. Uh, I don't think it was very much considering Brown, even when he you know really took over, threw for two hundred yards twice. Um, which is still like more than they. I think. I think Brown had more two hundred yard games than they had in like the three previous seasons or something like that. I feel like I ran the numbers on it, and it was, like, embarrassing. He averaged 5.3 yards on attempt, which is pretty pretty pedestrian. Only nine interceptions through, like, nine games. Not great. If you, you know, he had a positive touchdown interception rate, which is, is decent for what you'd say. He only got sacked seven times, which is good. So they prevented, like, big losses. Um, he also really only started using his legs about midway through his, his uh, his, when he was really the, the main starter here. Um in that Vatek game in week uh, week six, I believe, uh, he or their sixth game, he ran 50 yards, and after that he was more of a threat uh, on the ground. But overall, like, that hasn't been as much of the you know a factor as, as you'd imagine to see he's a pretty mobile quarterback. So, yeah, there were some things to like here. Uh, the 275-yard games against UVA is basically why uh, they can afford to, to have uh, Dylan kind of shut down in that one. He threw for three touchdowns. Uh, completed almost 80% of his passes, so that's great. If he has more of those, then this offense, you know, might really hum. It's the fact that he was pretty pedestrian otherwise. Um, at, you know, probably below pedestrian, to be honest. So if they're getting more of the, you know, 130, no touchdown, one interception, sub-50% completion games, um, it's going to be a struggle. Uh, now, that was Clemson, so not every defense is going to look like Clemson, but... Clemson wasn't the only defense that did that to him last year. Louisville also did. So, yeah, and it really depends on, on what kind of step forward Brown takes and if he can find some consistency. If he does, then I think we could see some upside, take a look at their schedule to see, like, what they could possibly do here. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the schedule now. Um, I've got sure wins against UMass and Holy Cross. Um, i got a win against Temple. I think they beat us. Um, and the rest of it's kind of weird because, like, winnable games against Wake and, and Purdue are both on the road. NC State, the, same deal. The road, the road slate's just very unforgiving. At Wake is, is, I think those teams are pretty close. Purdue, same thing. I, I think Purdue, those are both pretty close teams. NC State, right in the mix there. And then Vatek of Florida State at the end of the season, they'll be pretty definitive underdogs. I mean, that's, and that's a hellish stretch from October 13th through November 17th. You got Louisville, Miami, at Tech, Clemson, and at Florida State. You know, your entire bowl hopes could just be dashed if you go one and four in that stretch. Yeah, I think the Wake-Purdue games are very, they're back, they're, well, they're over the course of uh, nine days. It looks like I assume one of those is a Friday. Yeah. Yeah, so I think getting one of those is pretty pretty huge for the bowl hopes because, you know, there's no guarantee that Louis, like Louisville will talk about, it, obviously, in a bit. Um, it's, it's hard to know what they'll be without Lamar Jackson, but... They have a lot of talent. They have more talent than BC on the roster overall. So you can't just assume a win there. Obviously, Miami should be very good. Um, Clemson is going to probably run the table. Vatek, winning at Vatek is very difficult no matter what. Same winning at Florida State, especially once they're they're probably playing some of their best football at the end of the season. BC can be pretty good and only finish 6-6 six and six or 7-5 and five, um, based on the schedule just because the, the road home splits are, are not friendly at all. Yeah, and that's the weird thing. Like nobody's really looking at that schedule when they're they're projecting top twenty-five and nonsense like that. Like you know what, BC is going to be a good team this year. That's that good team still might struggle to win more than six games. 
and and that's fine. And uh, yeah, what 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 I what I have a problem with is is the people just blindly buying in um, as top twenty five team. Like, g- good luck finding more than seven wins on that schedule. If it happens, hey, I was wrong. Not the first time. But uh, I want to move a little bit more swiftly on the other teams. And that was a an extended BC chat because we had some shade to throw. Next up is a team we beat last year, uh, Clemson. What's up, Tigers? You're probably going to go undefeated this year. Yeah, you're trash, but you're probably going to really, go Really terrible. What a terrible team. <laughs> um, I'm sure everyone's heard by now. Um, Clemson returns their entire defensive line. They're uh, all on the All-ACC team. Like, yeah, all of them. The entire, yeah, the entirety of, of the <laughs> All-ACC team is them. Uh, three of their, well, two of their top three linebackers are back, um, and they're having the same quote-unquote problems as Alabama now where the kids who who come in the following year have so much garbage time logged that it's like they started for the previous season so that's encouraging for us uh in general I think the defense is going to look really really good potentially the best in the country um they turn over talent at both kicker and punter um they do replace a bunch on, on the offensive line um an offensive line though that people were kind of iffy about here and there last year I think the run game is, is really going to control things if Kelly Bryant's under center. Um, Bryant, I think, could make plays, especially with his legs, but was also more of a game manager and someone just kind of stay out of the way while the, uh, the defense dominated. Um, but I think between him, uh, you know, they have Travis Etienne, they have uh, Tevian Feaster, they have a bunch of run backs back there. Um, obviously, Hunter Renfro's still there somehow. Um, at the wide receiver spot. So I think there's there's enough talent on the offensive end to keep them scoring points, but I think this defense is, is definitely going to win the day for them. I, I think the main storyline for Clemson, and it's probably not going to bubble up until they get to the heart of their schedule, is going to be what goes on at the quarterback position. It's very difficult to replace a guy like Kelly Bryant, who took them through the playoff last year. It's very eerie how similar this is, uh, this is to what Alabama is dealing with, like you alluded to given the fact that those teams have some, you know, pretty deep playoff history at this point. I think the Alabama one's probably sorting itself out a bit quicker. It sounds like Tacovailo is a lot, much far, you know, pretty far ahead. Right. Um, Bryant is, by all accounts, playing well. Trevor Lawrence might just be a special player sitting behind him as a true freshman. And he is, I I think he's going to take over as a starter at some point during the season. And that's not an easy thing to do. You don't want to lose your team. Um, and and that a lot of that's just based on, you know, who who really commands the who's the commanding presence in the locker room. And Brian obviously has a big leg up there, but Lawrence by all accounts is just such a like a special talent. And we saw Clemson last year when they finally got to play a superior defense like Alabama, they just didn't quite have it. Or Syracuse. Um, or Syracuse, yes, they just couldn't <laughs> overcome the Syracuse Orange defense. Um Without Kelly Bryant, even Trevor Lawrence, I think just did, just adds another element like Tad Devailoa does for Alabama. So I expect I don't expect it to be a dramatic college football playoff halftime switch. I do think he will start to eat into those those uh, situations earlier than Alabama let happen last year because Alabama had a couple closer games. Um, I think Clemson should roll through a lot of these games, so they'll get Lawrence a lot of reps, whether or not, and and they could probably hide it a little more. But overall, like I think once they're in the playoffs, I expect them to be in again. I think Lawrence will be the guy. Um, and if he is as good as, as advertised and as good as he looked in the spring and as good as he's reportedly looked during camp, that is very, very scary. Oh, I completely agree. Um, we don't have to go, dive into everything because I think that the, that the 
consensus is that this is the most talented team in the conference by a mile. Rather than going game by game, Dan, what is the most likely loss on this regular season schedule? Uh, let me see. Man, this is tough. <laughs> I think it's at Florida State, if only because it's late October, and FSU should have their, their shit together by then. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's probably it. It's probably at Florida State. Um, A&M early in the year is tough. Jimbo knows them, which is not the best. I just don't think A&M's going to have it together that, by then enough to beat Clemson, which is t- very very much a well-oiled machine. At Georgia Tech always brings some weirdness, but I, I just don't think the L-Jacks are going to have the, the – uh, I just don't think they're going to have the talent. And also, they play, they're the crossover, right? So they play every year. They are, yes, they are the crossover. To be honest, though, I, re- I didn't realize till now, I do like the fact that they faced Georgia Tech the week before us. I do too. Did we say this about, what team did we say this about last year? Miami. Miami. And we almost beat Miami. Like, very, very much almost beat Miami. So um, I do like that too. Um, I mean, we're I, still going to lose, but. Yeah, no, they're definitely going to be, they're going to want to beat us so bad. Oh, Wait, it's we, we we have to really enjoy last year's win as long as we can. I don't I don't give a shit. E- even after they beat us this year, I'm still gonna talk smack. I mean, think about it. Like they beat us, they beat us by more than 50 points a year before, and it didn't stop us from clapping right back the following season and just trolling the hell out of them every day since. So and just pretend the 50 point loss didn't happen. You know what? Whatever happens this year, I'm gonna do the same exact thing. Yep, keep it moving. <laughs> anyway. Um, all right, so at Florida State is probably the most likely loss, but I think we're both in consensus that Clemson runs the table here. Yeah, if they have more than one loss, I'll be shocked. Fair. I, I'm in the like, same And way. even one loss. I think there's like, I'd say it's like 50-50, no, zero to one loss entering the playoff. And even with one loss, unless it's disastrous or just the timing's awful, um, I don't think that would get knock them out. I think the playoff will be open enough this year we'll let in with one loss without too much of an issue if that was the case. Yeah, I mean, when you have A&M on there, I think Georgia Tech should be all right, but you know, South Carolina should be a better team. There's enough on there to, I think the most years, work. yeah, the schedule's there for, for most ACC teams to get in one loss. I think the over-under's 10.5 for Clemson. I pound the over. So let's, uh, let's move on from Clemson for now. We might have to revisit later on and we talk a little bit of playoff. Um, Florida State, our favorite for some reason, non-Syracuse ACC team when it comes to football. Um, FSU retools with uh, Willie Taggart at the helm. Uh, some might remember him from his USF days. Um, he was there right after he was at Western Kentucky. Syracuse kind of helped him keep his USF job and somehow launch him here. So when Florida State installs an up-tempo offense and is running us off the field again in the next year or two, um, you can blame ourselves for that. The USF win over Syracuse ended up turning into the Bulls becoming a competent program again. That landed him at Oregon. Being pretty good at Oregon landed him here. So that much is definitely fun. a piece for the week of the Florida State game. I completely agree. It is. <laughs> let's let's hope I'm actually like online for it. I, I feel like I'm going to be if, if this kid arrives and they're supposed to. Oh, that thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, that, that whole situation. That, 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 you know. Yeah. It's going to throw a little bit of a wrench into football season. <laughs> but oh. ha- happier happier things in general. But it's uh, I, I, will, I will warn everyone in advance, this is going to be a weird football season. <laughs> it's Syracuse. Obviously, it's going to be a weird football season. Obviously. No babies going to impact that in one, one direction or the other. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Moving on from my personal life. 
Florida State does their usual. They replace a bunch. Um, their offensive line is still a disaster. It has been for years somehow. Um, they replace most of the defense, um, though I think Brian Burns is one of the better defenders in the conference. I think that this will be firing where it's supposed to be by the time we hit like mid-October. Um, but I, I think a lot of people are circling that September 15th game up at Syracuse because um, they just don't know if, if Taggart's going to have this team ready to roll just yet. And, and that could present a, uh, an opportunity for, for an upset-minded Babers team that always seems to, to catch somebody up at the Dome since he arrived. Yeah, we've talked about it a bunch, like, and, and other you know national publications have, have brought it up as like a potential big upset spot in the ACC just because we have that rep of winning that game in the Dome every year. And also, like Taggart, it's not just um, not just South Florida. Like it took it took him a, a year or two to get Western Kentucky really running too. He was two and ten his first year there. Um, Oregon had a buck to try, but he had way more uh, talent to inherit there than he did at USF, which had really bottomed out, or at WKU. And Oregon, you know, probably would have finished a lot better if not the injury to Justin Herbert, which we brought up a couple weeks ago. Yeah, so uh, I, I think it will take Taggart a little bit because he is switching from like a, a pretty. It's not that drastic of a shift compared to like what we've seen some other programs but his system is not the same as Jimbo's Jimbo is, is about as close to like the pure pro style offense as you're going to get in college Obviously, slow as hell it's just slow and beats the hell out of you and uh he gets quarterbacks drafted etc cetera, etc cetera. Taggart is a little more malleable um he spreads things out a little bit more but he keeps that power running game which I think is actually a really nice fit for this roster especially with the the running back talent they have uh, with Cam Akers. And Who's going to blow us up again, no matter what happens in that oh, game. Oh, he's, he's a, he's a uh, house. <laughs> it's going to be rough. I do think that is an upset potential spot there. I wouldn't. I probably won't pick it. But if, if there's a, a huge one on this schedule, like it just lines up um, for Florida State. Now, if they go in week one and blow the doors off Bot Tech, then I'll probably be a lot less eager about that. Um but also, like, we, we still don't – I don't know if – do you think their quarterback situation is going to be totally hashed out by week three? Um, no, but I don't necessarily think it matters, if only because both quarterbacks have started a full season at this point. Yeah, it's, it's, this is one of the more interesting quarterback battles. It's, it's going under the radar compared to, like, the Alabama one or the Ohio – well, the Ohio State one's kind of shaking out now. But um, I talk about the other, like, high-profile ones because Francois, DeAndre Francois, started all of 2016, and then Justin Blackman – or not Justin. Um, James Blackman. James Blackman, Justin Blackman was the Boston College, Oklahoma State. Yes, the Oklahoma State wide receiver. Um, last year, I don't think he's still there, is he? Uh, no, I think he like graduated like a he year or two ago. Year. Was last yeah, year? Was really or two years ago. ago. Yeah. Um, I think it was last year. He was on that really good, that really good team they had last season, and he was he's a Jacksonville Jaguar now. As yeah. All Oklahoma State. That's all great Oklahoma State. <laughs> oh no. Justin Blackman was the one a while ago, um, twenty twelve, and he flamed out. Uh, he was a Jaguar. I guess he's still a Jaguar. He's just suspended from the league. Yeah. He's on the, the Josh Jordan plan. Who was the Oklahoma State writer? Oh, this is bad. He was like one of the, probably the best receiver in the country. I feel like that's the case with an OK State receiver every year. Uh James Washington. Oh, yeah, him. Okay, so I mixed up Justin Blackman and James Washington. It's James Blackman. He his numbers weren't as good as Francois last year were in 2016, but Francois obviously had a much better, more motivated team playing around him. 
Francois also has like he's had a weird off season. He's had uh, there was like a domestic dispute where which has apparently been settled, but that is not what you want from your quarterback. Blackman um, apparently the team he's very popular with the team. He kind of took ownership of that whole situation last year where Jimbo Fisher clearly didn't. So they're both experienced. They both have a full year under their belts. They both have good moments. Francois is probably a little more. I'd say he's probably a little more gifted, but. Blackman might have earned it more, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I think that's, so, that's a fair characterization. It's very, very up in the air. Um, but either one's good enough to beat us, so we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see where that we are where we're at at that week three. It's still, I could see this one playing into the season because it does seem like about as close as you're going to get for a quarterback battle. I would agree. I think we could even see... I think Taggart's smart enough not to do the uh, two-quarterback system thing, but... Um, it might get some play against Samford just to see what happens, especially as he wants to make sure it's settled, I would assume, by the time we get to the Syracuse game. But uh, speaking of the Syracuse game, I'm looking at the schedule here. Um, I'm seeing wins against Samford, wins against Northern Illinois, at Louisville. I'll give them Wake at home and Florida. So that gets us to five. I don't think the rest are toss-ups necessarily, but those are just the five sure wins I see on the schedule. Yeah, I think Florida State will be favored in most of these. Vatek, like we talked about them last week, um, they should be pretty good again. I think there are some weird question marks they don't usually have. So that's that's a really telling game for both those teams in week one. Um, and it's a, it's a tough opener for a, first, uh, a new head coach. So we'll see where that goes. Um, at Louisville, uh, we're going to talk about that in a second. That's, you know, it's tough to know what to make of the Cardinals this year. And on the road, that's always – it's never, you know, super easy. Miami uh, is going to be a really tough game. Wake Forest could be a uh, surprisingly tough game, especially. Um, that That's like a classic, like, solid verbal uh, letdown look ahead spot between the, the rivalry game at Miami and then the huge imminence thumbs in the week after. Uh, I, got, I guess I have a buy between Miami and Wake, but still, um, that'll help a little bit. But it's still sandwiched between – it's probably the two biggest games on the schedule for them. And then at Notre Dame, it's not easy either. Notre Dame – also has some question marks, uh, but are very talented. So, yeah, they, I mean, this to be, I, I could see them winning anywhere from like seven to like nine or ten if they click early. It's just a matter of like, there's a lot of very tough toss-ups in here. Agreed. I'm giving them nine and three here. I think they lose the obvious ones um, at Miami, Clemson, at Notre Dame, and then like that that does give them some building blocks though for next year. So, I think the uh, smart Florida State fan. Takes a really nice nine and three year after last year, which has to be had to be so demoralizing. Um, not that Florida State hasn't had a lot to like cheer for recently, but like that was one of the most like clear like coach was just out of it situations since like June Jones and SMU. So I think Taggart is like the I think Taggart was a really really good hire for bouncing back from a situation that had clearly kind of devolved and and both sides kind of needed a change. Um, Taggart obviously wants to be there. He's he's going to be held a recruiter dance for everyone in Florida and he's very excitable and, and you know seems like a, a player's coach but like in the ways that still are effective I completely agree there um, Taggart's a great hire he's one of the better hires in the country um, I just want to see how, how quickly he gets up off the ground here and I think it'll be it'll be quick enough moving on to Louisville Lamar Jackson's gone that's the biggest takeaway here uh, they have all their other skill position players for the most part though they probably can't run the ball most of the lines back and they replace almost the entire defense and also bring in Brian Van Gorder, which whatever, man, do your thing. Uh, so 
I don't really see Louisville winning more than... I think Vegas gave them like eight and a half, and I just like laughed my ass off on that one. Um, I think this team's like six and six, seven and five, but um, you know, with some of the pieces together to like stay, keep it close and then get better next year. Yeah, eight and a half is rough. I mean, you're, so to win that bet, you need to only lose three games. They have Alabama, they have Florida State, they have a annoying Georgia Tech game. Um, at Clemson, not, good night. At Clemson. Uh, at us, which is not easy, obviously. NC State, which is you know pretty even. Wake Forest, which is pretty even. At BC, like they're not going to only lose three games. Even Kentucky, even... and we're on short rest. Yeah, that's actually even... my upset pick for SU. That one is probably more likely than Florida State. Uh, yeah. Than Florida State. Florida State's more sexy because we've you know beaten Louisville before and we played them for a long and time. Louisville's not going to be a top twenty-five team we face then. I probably not. I do think. I think the the thing the argument for Louisville is that we're all discrediting Bobby Petrino as a very good coach. Bobby Petrino's a very good coach. Like he did one, he hit Arkansas as like a borderline uh, uh, national championship contender. Um, he did get Lamar Jackson. No, no, he didn't get Lamar Jackson. Was who recruited Lamar Jackson? Strong? Did he inherit him from Strong and got lucky? Uh, that I don't. I thought Petrino got him. To be honest, he might have. Either way, he he. I mean, he coached Lamar Jackson the whole time he was there. So he also found a way to get only eight wins out of a Lamar Jackson team last year. Yeah, and that that both is like the defense is really bad, but also Bob Petrino is the head coach, so it's not not his fault. Um, now, <laughs> and you also now didn't did, do anything to fix it. Well, oh well, hold on. They fired the defensive coordinator. No, I know, but then they, but then Pete Sermon. Yeah, but, but they hired. Then they hired Brian Van Gorder. So like, you didn't they hired do anything Brian to fix Van Gorder. It. Who uh, I, I'm not directly quoting Bill, Tal- uh, Bill Donnelly because I don't have this portion of his preview up, but I know it's what he said in in Essentia. Um, Brian Van Dorder hasn't been part of a defense that improved in a decade, oh. <laughs> which is which is an all time quote. Going down the list, last year Oklahoma State brought him in as like a assistant, like a defensive assistant. Um, they uh, I think they fired their DC um, the year before. Georgia brought him in as a defensive assistant. After he was fired from Notre Dame and like literally like run out of South Bend on like I think people were chasing if if Notre Dame fans actually were from South Bend for the most part like they'd be chasing him out of town he could not have Brian Kelly could not have gotten him out of there fast enough in 2016 he was part of that amazing first quarter we had against them at the MetLife he was he was uh, a Jets coach in 2013 I I'm going to flip and find out how the New York Jets were in 2013 Jets uh, I'm assuming because. I can't imagine, like, I'm trying to think of that, like, general time frame. I can't imagine they were good. Mm, nope. I don't think they've been, like, any... Well, they were 8-8. Eight eight. They were 8-8, eight eight, but Rex Ryan was there. So the defense, like, is Rex Ryan's baby. That, that's a typical Jets season, though. Yeah, he was at Auburn. Like the worst 8-8 eight eight team ever. <laughs> he was he was in Auburn in 2012, which is uh, the year after Cam Newton, right? And yes. they were not very... They were, uh... They were 3-9. and nine. <laughs> And, and uh, winless in the SEC. Uh, that was two years after Cam Newton. The year after, they fell to like eight and five or so, and then they went uh, three and nine and fired uh, Gene Chizik. Yeah, so he was on that staff. Uh, he was the head coach of Georgia Southern. He was, uh, and that didn't go well. Uh, it only lasted a year. Um, I believe he tried to go against, uh, go away from the option, and that is a big no-no there. So I guess like he was uh, on the staff of the '05 Jacksonville Jaguars. I'm going to assume that wasn't a good football team. 
based on the history of the, of the franchise. Actually, I think that might have been a good football team. Was that one of the weird uh, playoff teams? I know. Oh, oh seven. They were, they were yeah, that was actually one of the better Jacksonville Jaguars teams. Okay, so we found one, and he was on. He was an assistant. He was a mid-year assistant at 2016 Georgia, which was the first Kirby Smart Georgia team, uh, which I don't think he had a huge impact on how that team did. No. <laughs> Yeah, so basically, it has not been a good run for Brian Van Dorder. He's a pretty bad defensive coordinator. Um, he has worse hair. And there's just, like, a really funny hire to make. Because there's um, nobody and- on this defense really... Like, there's a couple people on this defense we're talking about, but I'm not going to because Brian Van Gorder is going to ruin them. <laughs> um, I took notes... Uh, well, Jair Alexander was basically the only thing that kept their defense afloat last year. Um, he had a ton of interceptions. He was a big-time playmaker at corner. Uh, and he is in the NFL. He's placed for my Green Bay Packers, so I look forward to that. When he was off the field, uh, according to Bill C., uh, they were – I mean, they were really bad the whole time. When he was off the field, they were, like, special bad. Well, he was a great cover guy. So, yeah, I don't I don't see this going well for them. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that, that upset pick in pen, to be honest right now i will on offense like though petrino i could see them being like a worse version of last year where they still score a lot of points um they do have a quarterback named pass which is cool yeah and he doesn't run much he's a pocket passer his name is pass appropriate we've had this discussion here before he's a former four-star guy and he was a big recruit i think they got him over alabama um if i remember i remember when he was a recruit uh i could be wrong on that but i don't feel like looking it up um but juan pass might be pretty good but he hasn't played yet. I mean, he's playing lightly. Uh, so that's a question mark. Their offense, like, I think otherwise projects to be pretty good. The defense just might be really abysmal. Like, worse than last year, which is not great. But Pacino's been a good head coach and is, like, the weird, like, model of consistency at Louisville right now. So I don't even know, like, they have a new administration. I don't know if they'd want to overhaul the football program right now based on everything else that's going on there or if they'd use it as an excuse just to, like, get their own person in. Yeah, I, I think he's going to go at some point, and, and if they they finish less than seven and five this year, it might be their excuse. Um, but yeah, looking at the schedule, I uh, got losses to Alabama, Florida State, at Clemson, at Syracuse. Um, that's four, and give me give me at BC, and I think they can probably beat the rest. So even then, that's still seven and five. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely not beating Alabama. That's going to be an ugly, ugly week one game. I think Florida State, I mean, at worst, Florida State should be able to get enough done on offense to take care of them. I won't like, go out of my way to pick us in that game, but it could happen. Um, I'm definitely going to pick Clemson. Those are three um, pretty comfortable losses, I feel like, to get to your, your eight and a half. And then one more, I mean, give me any of uh, – Give me. I mean, they're not going to go undefeated against Georgia Tech at BC – at Syracuse, Wake Forest, and NC State, Kentucky. Like, they're going to lose at least one, probably two of those. So, yeah, I, I say they're probably looking at like a 6-7-5 six and six, seven and five season, in all likelihood. And that's fine for them. Or it should be. It should be. Now, we'll find out if it is. Um, I, it's really tough to gauge, like, what the what the scenario at Louisville football, uh, football is and whether it's impacted at all by Louisville basketball. Probably, it's probably not fair for it to be, but... It's hard to, I mean, we know these things like impact, like we know how the seasons kind of bleed into each other and how like overall feel at the university within the fan base um, like is a thing. Uh, obviously, we are also a two-sport school, so it, it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Like, I don't think Petrino, as far as we know, hasn't done anything to 
deserve getting fired aside from whatever happens this season, but um, it wouldn't be the craziest thing if a season goes really poorly or even like moderately poorly um, by Louisville standards if the new administration just wants a clean slate all over the place. Yeah, I, I buy it. Um, moving on from Louisville, one team that might be a little overrated, to another team that might be a little overrated, um, NC State. Um, NC State's been recruiting really well, and I will say that right off the jump. Um, I would say that last year's team was definitely a breakthrough for Dave Dorn. Uh, winning nine games is no easy feat anywhere. Um, if you're not a blue blood, and it's especially not an easy feat at NC State, which doesn't do it very often. But, like, Wolfpack and Abby to a bowl game in four straight seasons. Uh, Ryan Finley is probably the best quarterback in the conference. Um, they have a lot of great playmakers, wide receiver. Uh, but at the same time, they return hardly anybody on defense. And I think people are underrating just how much that front four in particular um, played a part in, in, in this group's success. So to be honest, like I could and other people are seeing this too. Like this seems like a, a half step back year and only that they win maybe six games um, and, and don't necessarily, you know, start looking at that, that third place, fourth place finish this year. But it doesn't mean they can't get right back to it in, in a year or so. Yeah, it could be tough because when you have a quarterback like Ryan Finley entering his senior year who has so much experience and and got to pretty good heights last year, you want to compete for something more there. But they lose Jalen Samuels, they lose Naheem Hines. Their defense should take a step back just based on like losing Bradley Chubb, which is a big deal, and uh, a handful of other big players. Their offensive line, I think, loses a pair of uh, all ACC types. So just like there should be a natural regression here unless like they get a lot of a lot of production from players who haven't really done it before. I think Doran's an interesting place. He was one of the like many, many coaches brought up for the Tennessee job. I feel like that would have even been an underwhelming hire for them. Um, not that they didn't make one. But I feel like Doran is in a spot where like he seems like a really, really solid coach for NC State. He just seems like if he uh, uh, a school even like one tier higher went to hire him away, everyone would be like, oh, that's just like what, uh, like very meh. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think Tennessee fans would have been much happier hiring him than than anybody else, um, especially who they ended up with in Jeremy Pruitt. Yeah, I I think Finley's going to put up big numbers, um, but again, I, I just I don't necessarily think this team's running game is as good, and, and, and that defense, like, that defense looked really good um, in a lot of spurts, but you don't just replace that sort of pass rushing talent. Like, they were still giving up 25 points a game, uh, they still struggled against the pass. Um, so th- there's a lot of reasons to cast at least a little bit of doubt uh, on, the, on this Wolfpack team. Um, if I'm looking at the schedule here, um, I got sure wins against JMU, Georgia State, at Marshall, um, probably Virginia, uh, and maybe at North Carolina. But that stretch from October 6th through the, uh, the October 6th game against Boston College to the uh, November 17th game at Louisville, I, I'd be surprised if they're able to, to eke out something better than 3-3 three and three there at most. We're sitting in a really nice letdown look ahead again. They, they stuck a, a road game at Syracuse right between a road game at Clemson and a home game against Florida State. Yeah, I mean, to me, the, you know, that's really ideal, and I don't think this is going to be a... If we beat them at home, it's not going to be a major, major upset. Um, no. But it actually might end up being, if we were able to beat them, I think it'd be a better upset than, than the Louisville game could be by end of season. Yeah, I'll. Uh, I don't. I think we. Pro- I think we probably win this game, but I. I don't want to necessarily commit to that just yet. 
Um, because I, I know there's a lot of those kind of like iffy games in the middle of the schedule for Syracuse. Basically, everyone sub Florida State in the Atlanta is like in the same general general tier of team, and you just hope that you win like two of them. Oh, 100%. Um, so, and, you know, Syracuse has won like none of them of late, so... Um, yeah, we, we've really come up short in these like coin flips, and if we, you know, want to take the step forward to like being a bowl team, you have to win some of these. Like, even that, that Schaefer team in the first year of the ACC, like, they won some of them. Yeah. They, they, got, they got the things done. So that, that's what we need to start doing, hopefully in a more aesthetically pleasing pe- uh, fashion than we did that year. I think we threw for, like, 10 yards in NC State, still one on the road there. But I would take that. So, yeah, that's definitely a thing we need to, you know, it's, that's, that's the major next step here in, this, in the pro- development of this program. Right, and like NC State's in the same boat as us, and so is Wake. Like that, that, that adage I've used for the last few years of like, you know, Syracuse every year is going to win four, lose four, and it's what you do in the middle that kind of defines the season. I, I'd say NC State's kind of in, in a similar boat more often than not. Um, so this year, like looking at what those four, lo- four wins are, I think I named them. Lucky them, I, I'd say there's only like three shore losses on here right now with at Clemson, Florida State, and uh, and. I'd say probably Boston College. And I know that, like, has me now, like, buying into Boston College. Actually, no. I'd say West Virginia is the more sure loss than that. Um, and even that's not a sure loss. I mean, it's at home. Like, they could win that game. I, don't, I think West Virginia is probably better than them, but I'm not I'm not going to guarantee it. I'm, I'm going to bank on West Virginia there. I think West Virginia's uh, starters are, are, especially on the offensive end, are going to be able to blow by this defense early. But, yeah, I, I'd say NC State... I think they could go six and six, seven and five here. I think seven wins is fair. Um, really depends on like what you, how you feel about Louisville, North Carolina, and Wake Forest. Like, give me seven and five. No, actually, give me six and six. Sorry, I know it's a little bit of a cop out. Give me six and six, but 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 there's enough there's enough pieces there with a the younger talent that that you see how they bounce back the following season. Yeah, I think they're like right in the cusp of that six to seven wins. I think just like this whole Atlantic is is so there's a lot of that. And it's just going to be – it's just a matter of, of piecing together some of those and just just finding ways to win some of these games that, that you know, the, the, that's been, like, the real the real differentiating factor. And last year, NC State finished 9-3, and three and that was – or, I think, 9-4 and four with the ball. Is that what they ended up? Yeah. Yeah, so, like, last year they also benefited from Florida State having their worst season in forever. Yeah, so I think they're right in that 6 or 7 win range. And, you know, if Finley takes a huge step forward for his final year and is, like – one of the 10 best quarterbacks in college football, then maybe maybe they're looking at, you know, eight wins and another, like, nice year. I, I don't see their ceiling being much higher than that, though. I would agree. Uh, moving on to yet another team that's in that kind of, uh, to steal a term from uh, podcast ain't played nobody, the uh, cul-de-sac of sorts here in the ACC, uh, Wake Forest and the claw fence. Everyone's kind of banking on them, continuing their upper trajectory. I think they can but I also think that expecting them to be the same as they were last year or even better is also kind of a fool's errand. Um, you know, there's no more John Wolford. Wolford was a really dynamic quarterback by his senior year. Uh, Cam Serene's gone. Jesse Bates um, heads off to the NFL. Duke Ejiofor is also gone. Their top pass rusher. Um, they lose about half their defense. They don't lose much on offense, and Greg Dorch is back, and he wasn't even playing in that game uh, against Syracuse last year. But in general... I don't necessarily think that Hinton's going to be able to replicate the type of production that Wolford had. So it, 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 it honestly depends on how much you believe that this run game uh, led by Matt Colburn and suddenly Wake is a run game again. Like, 
it really depends on how much you think that's going to be able to carry the load on offense. Uh, I I think they're another team that probably is is without going game by game is probably in that six seven win range, um, if only because of what they're replacing. But like everybody else, they're really not too far from falling under that six win mark, um, just because of the parity in in the middle there. Yeah, I think for Wake this year, you're probably looking at like a step to a half step back, and you just have to hope that that means they can still get to a bowl game and reap the benefits there. They're de- they definitely, I think it's it's fair to say that Clawson has, has followed through and gotten them to a, a new level of from you know where they were. I think he's, I think the rebuild is basically done, and now this is the sustaining portion. Um, and you know, just going sits and sits and making it to a bowl, whatever happens there, is like probably a pretty good result based on where they were coming from and the level of talent that you can get at Wake Forest. They do have the obstacle. They have uh, Hinton. While I don't think he'll be Walford, he was pretty uh, he was pretty effective in in some time in 2016 when Hall- Walford was was hurt. But he's out for the first three games of the season. It's not the most uh, difficult three game stretch. Too they do have Boston College. <laughs> they do have Boston College on September 13th. Um, luckily at home for them, um, but they do travel to Tulane in Week One. That could be a weird game. They play the the option. Um, they're not a team that plays Georgia Tech all the time. Uh, that could be a weird one. Uh, at Yeoman Stadium on the road, I think Wake will win it. But without your quarterback, that's not the the easiest spot. Um, I mean, it could be more difficult at least. Uh, and then they're they're thrown into they have Rice as their final non-conference, um, which is pretty. Uh, I think you'll take that all the time, especially Rice in a a uh, coaching change situation uh, year. Uh, oh, there's not the final non-conference. Notre Dame technically uh, is September 22nd. That's going to be a rough one. Although they do host them, so that should be interesting. Uh, and then it's off to the races. They have Clemson, a bye at Florida State, at Louisville, which is a tough stretch. Uh, and then us, and then at NC State. They do get Pitt this year, and then at Duke. So I think starting strong and finishing strong is going to be very important here. How do they get this five games in a row at home nonsense? Uh, I don't know. It's weird. It's five It's five in a row without a bye either. Yeah, that's silly. And then they never play more than two on the road in a row. Somehow. <laughs> that's... I mean, we do know that Wake Forest is the like consigliere for the ACC, so they, they clearly got the beneficial uh, the beneficial hookup here. Uh, all right, looking at this schedule, I got a win against Tulane, though I really think Tulane could take the win there. Uh, I got a win over Tulane, a win over Towson, a win over Rice. Uh, give me the pit game. That's four. Um, and then I think... Duke's tough, but Duke's not definitely a great home field. Yeah, but I think Duke is good enough. I think... Give me four definites, um, and then I'll give them definite losses against Florida State, Clemson, and Notre Dame. And they'll lose, they're going to definitely lose one of Louisville and NC State. They're not going to sweep those two on the road. Right. So I think you can probably pencil in one more loss between those two. And they're probably going to lose one of the BC or Syracuse games, too, to be honest. Yeah, it's just, I think I think there's they're like a 5-7 to seven win, and you hope, if you're awake, if you get six wins, I think you're very happy, because that means you withstood losing... All the players from the last administration, which I know is is not always like a huge concern when the last administration obviously didn't succeed, but we've seen plenty of coaches come in, win right off the bat, and it, like then fall apart. Uh, this is all Clawson now moving forward, and you you obviously survive a pretty big quarterback change. Yeah, uh, if I'm Wake, I'm fine with it. I think there's a lot of Wake fans who think that kind of nine wins is. I've I've seen Wake fans claiming nine wins is like something that they want this year, and that's that's not happening. I think I would go as far to say that I don't know what would I don't think Clawson could get fired this year. I think 
he has gotten enough goodwill now where he could I can't even imagine what would have to happen in terms of purely on the field stuff for him to lose his job same um, yeah I mean even a disastrous three win year I think he has enough he has enough uh, goodwill to survive it um, because that would probably entail like a lot of bad injuries and whatnot I would agree. I, I think, you know, Wake succeeding, even though they're North Carolina, I think it's a good sign for Syracuse's ability to succeed. So um, I, I want us to beat them. Otherwise, I don't really care what happens to Deacons. I know they recently, like, broke their – in the last two years, they broke their, their string of bad luck against us. I, I hope that bad luck continues this year, this time maybe without injuries for them. Yeah, I don't I, – I have uh, – I obviously don't have any, you know, contempt for, for Wake Forest. I think – like you said, I think it's a good sign when they succeed – like their situation is not significantly easier than ours, so it's anytime I see a team that's a, a very much a peer school of Syracuse succeeds, I think it's a a fair uh, it's fair to like look on that as a as a bright spot for the potential for Syracuse. Totally, and th- and they definitely got there. They definitely got there last year. I mean that that bowl win was awesome for them, even though uh, they beat A and M, right? They, they beat A and M, and they I think it was fifty five fifty two was the final. Yeah, I and mean, that's a crazy game, and that's a very much like a bowl result in A and M had, you know, I think they had already fired someone at that point. So that's like, you know, it's a weird situation. But, you know, anytime you're a Wake Forest and you beat, you know, a Texas A&M in a bowl, like that's got to feel pretty good. Yeah. Um, all right. So we said Clemson's going to win this division. Uh, do you think Clemson wins the conference? And if so, are we assuming Clemson also makes the playoff? Yes, yes, yes. Fair enough. Um, all right. I think that's it for our Atlantic Division preview. Uh, like we said, next week we're going to have Syracuse in full. Going to go down the entire roster, the entire schedule, uh, talk just about everything you could possibly say about the Orange. Dan, anything else for you before we depart? No. I uh, hope to see some of you guys uh, tomorrow night at uh, Broken Bow. Slash, I hope I saw some of you guys uh, last night at Broken Bow, depending on when the spot test is up. Yes. Please go, folks. Please. Um, anyway, that was Dan. I'm John. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into Troy Noons and Absolute Podcast. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Blog Talk, on wherever else you listen to podcasts, and go Orange. Go Orange. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.